0: The book of Colossians, uh, one of the smaller New Testament epistles, just four chapters, it, it follows pretty much uh, Paul's uh, way of teaching, two chapters of doctrine and then, a, and then two chapters of practical things. What we know about God means nothing if we don't put it into practice. Uh, it's the same thing about praying. What we read about praying, study about praying, until we actually start praying and, and put it into gear, it, it really doesn't matter much. It's just theoretic knowledge. And uh, we don't want to do that. We want to be practical. And so Paul always makes application of what he's been saying. Uh, let's read a, f- a few verses. And then we'll get into the message. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, and Timotheus, our brother. You'll notice that he makes a distinction between himself and Timothy. Timothy. Not that he's trying to uh, brag on himself, but he's trying to show the distinction there that he's an apostle and Timothy's not. And uh, so he he phrased that very well. It's not a negative thing in any way. Uh, Verse 2, to the saints and faithful brethren in Christ which are at Colossae. All of God's people are saints. If you're saved, you're a saint. You may not always act like one. Uh, but sometimes we're not careful. We'll emphasize the fact that we're a sinner so much, we'll forget that we're, we're saved, we're born again, we're saints of God. And, and uh, when the Lord wants to fellowship with someone, we're the ones he fellowships with. We're his people. So to the saints and faithful brethren in Christ, which are in Colossae, grace be unto you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We give thanks to God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus, and of the love which you have to all the saints, for the hope which is laid up for you in heaven, whereof you heard before in the word of the, of the truth of the gospel, which is come unto you as it is in all the world, and bringeth forth fruit as it doth also in you, since the day ye heard of it, and knew the grace of God in truth, as you've learned of Epaphras our dear fellow servant, who for you is a faithful minister of Christ, who also hath declared unto us your love in the Spirit. May we pray. Father, I pray you'd help us to begin to learn some things about the epistle to the Colossians. I ask that you'd feed our souls upon it. Father, we live in a dry and thirsty land where no water is. We can't draw satisfaction from Egypt. We have to get our satisfaction from you. Thank you, Lord, that you're able to make water come out of a flinty stone. Thank you, Lord, you're able to have the ravens feed your man bread and and, uh, meat every single day. Father, you're able to watch over and provide and and take care of us. And Lord, may we rest in thee, trust you, to do what men say cannot be done. Father, may we just simply believe God uh, for your promises and for all that you said that you would do in our lives and through our lives. In Christ's name, amen. Uh, some things about the city of Colossae. Uh, the, the epistle to the Ephesians and the epistle to the Colossians are closely linked. Uh, and, and the reason being is, is the subject matter and how they present it. In Ephesians, a great truth revealed to Paul and through him, made known to all nations, and is w- what he calls the mystery. The mystery, which is the church revealed as the body of Christ. Uh, Philippians said, Christ in you the hope of glory. Colossians, Christ is the head of the church, risen and glorified. Believers are to hold the head in honor and in respect. The headship of Christ is the theme. And if you want to put, uh, paint it with a big brush, you would put the preeminence of Christ. And he is preeminent. He's above all. There is no God to be compared to him. and uh, Romans chapter number 8 says, Even our afflictions that we have are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. So there's no way to compare our God to any other God. We need doctrinal teaching. The reason we need doctrinal teaching is it will keep us from being shaken by every wind, slight of wind that blows or slight of men that comes by where they start twisting Scripture and different things it is critical for you and I to know doctrine. So a doctrine's boring. No, it's not. It may be boring the way we present it sometimes, but what's boring about being saved and saved forever? What's boring about being indwelt by the Holy Spirit of God? What's boring uh, about having a salvation that every believer has so we can fellowship around the same Christ, around the same truths, and wherever we might be, we enjoy that, that type of thing? What's What's boring about that? I'd answer nothing, that's for sure. The early church was assaulted with a strange mixture of, this church was, this Colossian church, a mixture of Jewish legalism, Greek philosophy, and Oriental mysticism uh, that took the name of Christ and became a, the mystery of iniquity. And quite frankly, what pops up in my mind as I read about uh, this type of false doctrine it's Gnosticism. Uh, how many of y'all know what Gnosticism is? One, two, three. I think we had four, five. Okay. Gnosticism is a cult that says it's good to believe in Jesus. That's wonderful, but you have to add the mysteries. You have to add you have to be initiated into the deeper truths. It was a syncretic way of, of bringing all these false religions together putting the name Jesus on top of it and, and making it to be Christian. Uh, at least they tried to make it so. There are three cities that are mentioned in the Colossi, uh, Colossians. Uh, the city of Colossae, Laodicea, and Heropolis. These, these cities are spread out over about 15 miles. Two of them are six miles apart. That's be Laodicea and uh, Heropolis. And so they could literally on a good day see each other on a hillside and look there's a river that flowed through there called the Lycus river and that's kind of the bond that tied all of these churches and all these areas together the the city of ephesus if you're if you had a map in front of you looking at it like i'm looking then off to your left would be ephesus over towards the coast and laodicea and Hierapolis and Colossae would be more inland uh, and so uh, the city of Colossae ethnically was Phrygian, P-H-R-Y-G-I-A-N. Heropolis was half and half of a a mixture of half Lydian and half Phrygian. Laodicea was assigned to Korea, C-A-R-I-A, and more rarely to Lydia. Heropolis and Laodicea on the western border of Phrygia, while Colossae lies further to the east. So if you're looking at these three cities for that 15 miles, Laodicea, Heropolis, and then nine miles further out would be the city of Colossae. Heropolis, you would love Heropolis. It was a resort town. It was a health resort. They had mineral water there that you could get in and, uh, with your aching bones and your, your other problems. It was considered a sacred city, and Apollo was their god and from its waters they obtained precious mineral dyes. Uh, they had black and purple and scarlet. Some of these colors were reserved for certain levels of society. Remember Lydia in the book of Acts who was a seller of purple. Now that was a very specific color and it was not, you could, anybody couldn't wear it. It had to be only people of the upper crust who were allowed to wear that. Laodicea had a dyer's guild as well, people who were involved in dyeing clothes. Uh, the chief city of this region, it was very rich and populous. And look in Revelation chapter 3 and verse 17, the church of the Laodiceans said, I'm rich and have need of nothing, remember? And the Lord rebuked them, said that you're poor, miserable, and blind and naked. Well, Laodicea was destroyed by an earthquake about 60 A.D. The Roman government gave them no help, no aid. And yet they rebuilt the city out of the riches of the population with no help from Rome. It was located on a trade route from Ephesus to the Euphrates River. And so it it made for good business. And it was a home to many philosophers, uh, those who were orators, sophists who were people who taught philosophy and rhetoric. Uh, That town was full of all those things. Colossae was once a great city, but it declined before the rise of Heropolis and Laodicea, and it was a great city at the time of the Persian War. Anybody know of the time of the Persian War? No volunteers? It was 499 B.C. to about 449 B.C., 50 years of war between Greece and Persia. And, of course, you remember... Uh, the, the Persian army, the Spartans, meeting them. I was inhabited by Phrygians, some Greek colonists, and Jews who have been brought there in great numbers by Antiochus the Great from Babylonia. So they moved the Jews into that area. And the heresy of this area has strong, or at least some, Jewish traits involved with it, and that's this Gnosticism, this mystery of iniquity which doth work. But by A.D. 400... Colossae had ceased to exist as a city now, that's kind of a rundown on the the area where where it is asia minor which would be turkey if you're looking on a map and you can uh, look in the back of your bible and, and see where all these cities are there was a fellow named epaphras we read about him there in verse number seven as ye also learned of epaphras our dear fellow servant who for you is a faithful minister of christ turn over to chapter four in the book of Colossians chapter number 4 let's see I didn't mark it in this Bible so I'm going to have to skim through and pick it up that's what I get for not marking it isn't it studying out of one Bible and preaching from another Epaphras, verse 12, Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ. So Epaphras evidently was from Colossae. And so he had a heart for this valley. And he evangelized this valley uh, for Christ. And you find some things over there in chapter 19 in the book of Acts uh, that speak of this as well. Paul's concern for these Colossian believers, you see in chapter 2 and verse number 1, he says, I've never met you face to face. For I would that you knew what great conflict I have for you and for them at, at Laodicea and for as many as have not seen my face in the flesh. So this is not a church that Paul established. This is a church that Epaphras, having been taught by Paul, he went off and started a church down there in, in uh, excuse me, Colossae. Do you all remember Bill Ashbury? missionary to Malawi, Uh, he had a a humpback, cripple man. I think he had one eye gone, if I remember right, but being humpback and crippled is bad enough. And he did yard work for Bill. Bill just did it so the guy could have some money. It wasn't really a necessary thing to do, but he let him do some stuff. And he he hung around Bill. He was around their church, and Bill taught soul winning very strongly there in Malawi. And so the humpback cripple man who had difficulty getting around, believed what he was told, that it's Christians' responsibility to be soul winners. So he began to visit a city or a little town not too far away. There was a hotbed of, of uh, Islam in that area, but he just kept going and going and going. And finally, one day, he said to Bill, I need some help. And Brother Bill said, what, what do you need? He said, I need some help over, and he named this village. Well, Bill knew immediately that's a hotbed of of Islam. What's he doing over there? And he said, well, what kind of help do you need? He said, well, I've been going over there and witnessing. And he said, there's too many of them now. I can't handle them all. And Bill asked him, well, how many are there? He said, about 125. Amen. If a one-eyed humpback cripple can do it, I think probably you and I could if we just would. And certainly the the Lord used him greatly, just like God used Epaphras to do this. Epaphras founded this church. Paul had never seen it. The The man who worked for Brother Bill established really a core. I mean, that's a pretty good-sized church, 125 people in Africa, pretty good-sized church. But Bill had never seen them. It's just what Bill was doing other things. It wasn't like he was ignoring them. He had plenty going on. And so his His yard man went over there to this area that was being neglected. And I think he won an imam to the Lord, won a bunch of other folks to Christ. And and so that's what really we're all supposed to be doing. Epaphras did that for this church. False teachers. False teachers seek to get people to follow them. You be wary of any person that's outside the Bible who says, I want you to follow me. Every godly preacher ought to be saying, I want you to follow Jesus. Don't follow me because I might make a mistake. I might stumble. I might falter. It's following Christ that matters. And when you have these false teachers who say, here's something new. You've never heard this before. Then you can just kind of mark it down. They've created something out of thin air. Uh, They've mangled something or twisted something and come up with it. There's nothing new under the sun, the Bible says. And be very wary of people like that. False teachers always seek to get people to uh, follow them. Chapter 2, and verse number 4. Uh, and this I say, lest any man should beguile you with enticing words. Uh, and uh, though I be absent in the flesh, yet am I with you in the spirit. Join and behold in beholding your order and the steadfastness of your faith in Christ. As ye have therefore received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk ye in him. As we talked about walking this morning. In, uh, in the, the book of 1 John. So here's a, the situation. False teachers try to draw people away. They try to pull people away. They won't go start something new, but they're glad to steal uh, sheep from other people. And it's a sad thing. It's an amazing thing. That sometimes God's sheep will follow a wolf to their own destruction. There have been a lot of false teachers in, in the land through the years. And there have been some good people who have been deceived by them. Who followed along behind them? Just either they were unknown, unknowing. They uh, we use the biblical term ignorant. They just didn't know, and they made poor decisions. Well, Paul warns them about that. Look in Acts chapter twenty, verse number thirty. Acts twenty and verse number thirty. All this stuff is just introductory. Acts twenty and verse number thirty. Also of your own self shall men arise, speaking perverse things, to draw away disciples after them. And verse 29, he calls them wolves. For I know this, that after my departing shall grievous wolves enter in among you, not sparing the flock. So false teachers, we see they want to draw people after them. They try to pull disciples away from Christ. And they are generally speaking, looking at fleecing the sheep, pretty regular. Open up your wallet and send you money to us. Send me $1,000 and God will give you $10,000. Do this and God will uh, give that to you. There's nothing in the Bible that indicates that. If I'm faithful to God, and I owe God my offerings, I owe God my tithes. If I'm faithful to God, God will supply all my needs. But it does, that's not a guarantee that, that I'll never run out of gas or won't ever have a financial need at all. And so false teachers lie. And, and, and they try to draw people to follow them. The heresy that Paul fought was likely incipient or the, the beginning of Gnosticism, not fully fleshed out as we saw it uh, as it began to work through history. It was a syncretism of Jewish, Persian, and Babylonian beliefs, and the origins of this Gnosticism were probably older than Christianity. So in other words, these Eastern mystic religions, they already had those. Um, how many of y'all know what a yin and a yang is? All right, got several folks. You see these little emblems, and it's half black. Looks like two tadpoles. Uh, one eye looking at you. Got a white one and a black one. And that is an Eastern position of the eternal struggle between evil and good. There's just one problem with that. There is no eternal struggle between evil and good, and the two forces are not equal. Our God is un, undeniable. Our God is unbeatable. Our God is invincible. And, and so there's no doubt about how things come. I've read the last page of the book. Uh, the Bible says that uh, God's going to bruise Satan under our feet. The book of Romans says that. And then the book of the Revelation, Satan's going to be cast to a lake that burns with fire and brimstone, and he'll be there forever and forever. And where are we going to be? We're going to be on the hillsides of glory having a time, enjoying the presence of God, enjoying each other, singing and, and making melody in our hearts. And, and the Bible says we'll be shouting amen, hallelujah, so loud it's going to sound like a, a waterfall or a, a thunderstorm that's coming through. These early Gnostics sought salvation by gnosis, or knowledge, as well as by the mysteries. Uh, Gnosticism, much like Catholicism, and I know this is, it may hurt some folks' feelings, but Gnosticism, much like Catholicism, sought to absorb new faith that it encountered. As it went into new areas, whatever those people had taught, it tried to make it a part of itself. You do realize that most of the statues and idols that Rome had were pagan, and and the church at Rome just accepted them. Uh, The mother and the child, that's Semiramis and and, uh, Tammuz, uh, those things are pagan. Uh, The Orthodox Church, (laughs) kind of humorous, the Orthodox Church in Eastern Europe taught against statues, but they had icons. And icons are three-dimensional pictures. Uh, so I, I saw them when I was there. You go up and they, they've got a texture to them, just like if it would be an icon of me standing there, you'd, my hands would be sticking out from the, the metal. Most of them were made out of metal, the ones I saw, and they're painted. And it's, by the way, it's still idolatry. Uh, I don't need a picture. By the way, nobody can give me a picture of Jesus anyway. We don't know what he looks like. We don't know what Paul looked like. They didn't. They didn't have the internet back then to store it in the cloud, so that we could look at it. But the Gnostics sought to to do everything by the, this knowledge. They had superior knowledge. Yes, we're saved, and but and you're saved. But we have the secrets. We have the extra knowledge. Uh, I, I exhort our men not to join any fraternities that purport to have uh, more knowledge, and they're going to give you some knowledge that you can't get without them. Listen, as a Christian, I'm trying to give away every ounce of knowledge I have. I have nothing to hide, and and so I hide nothing. I, 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 pre- I have preached everything I'm positive of and a few things I'm not sure of uh, through the years, but I believe them to be so. And uh, as the years have changed and, and rolled by, I've had to alter a few places and uh, nothing major but some things I have I've changed my position on I I've been on both sides of the argument in Genesis chapter 6 about whether it's angels or or, or men uh, sometimes it seems like at the same time I've been on both sides of the issue but those are things that we mature, as we mature we we change on and that's not some kind of secret knowledge I don't have secret knowledge that you don't have I may have a a better bible education than you do unless you spent four years in Bible college, and then some more post-grad work after that. But that doesn't mean that I have some kind of secret, special knowledge that I just share with Pastor Taylor and Pastor Barron, and, and we keep that to ourselves, and, and so we're the super spiritual ones, and we, we just kind of look down on y'all and think, well, we need to give them a little bit of this and a little bit of that. That's the idea of a hierarchy in the church or the priesthood and the laity. The priesthood had the mysteries... They had the super knowledge and then everybody else just had to get along with whatever the priest was willing to give them. Gnosticism claimed to be a religion for the intellectual elite. Uh, today we might even talk about a religion called Scientology as a religion for some elitist. Out in Hollywood, that's kind of a popular thing. Uh, Tom Cruise. How many of y'all know the name Tom Cruise? Yeah. Tom Cruise is their Christ. That's what they proclaimed some time back. And, uh, but Scientology is a false uh, teaching. It's been investigated as being subversive of the government and, and uh, breaking many, many laws. During this time that, that we're looking at here, when this was written, people were leaving the old pagan religions. And the, and the reason they were, they were, they were stone gods, and they'd just given up on those things. And they had drifted over into this uh, mystical situation that was all in your head, so to speak. And so they, they gave those things up in their, uh, for mystic religions that carried some idea of redemption. Redemption is not uh, exclusive to Christianity. Just how we get redeemed is what's exclusive. Our God didn't tell us to kill somebody, give our sons or our daughters or our animals or anything else to be redeemed. Our God gave himself to die in our place so that we could be redeemed. Makes us quite distinct from all the other religions. Paul referred to this Gnostic system as science falsely so-called, 1 Timothy chapter 6 and verse 20. I, I took the time to look the word up, science, in my King James Bible, And it's the word gnosis. It's a form of that word. Science, knowledge, falsely so called. Um, For instance, back in the colonial days, if I'm not mistaken, they drained a lot of blood out of a fellow by the name of George Washington. He was sick, and they were under the impression that if they would drain bad blood out of him, that he'd get healthy. And not realizing that you have a limited amount of blood, or how limited it was. They drained so much out, he finally just died uh, from doing so. We know today to be very careful about things like that. Our, Our science, our knowledge has increased. But they do call medical practice, practice. And they do so for a reason, because it's not a sure science. They know some things. And they know, quite frankly, they know a lot of things. Uh, transplants nowadays are, are not that unusual. Kidney transplants are uh, kind of old hat. They know exactly how to do those and and get them done. I talked to brother that was here with us last week that I can't say his name out loud right now, and his wife needing that kidney transplant. He said they won't take one out to put one in; they'll leave it in there. He said sometimes people wind up with as many as four or five kidneys. Of course, they only got one or two that's working. Well, that's wild to me. Uh, Brother Dave Holman had to have a kidney taken out. Well, to me, they ought to take a big old knife and cut you open and pull around in there, you know, and get that kidney and, and tie it off or something and get it out and then stitch you back up, but that's not how they do it. They take little microscopes and pieces of tools and they cut about three or four holes in there and they go in there with a baggie and shove that baggie in there and wrap it around your kidney and cauterize it, cut it off, and pull it out through the through the hole in the baggie. That's knowledge I don't have. I don't have that kind of technical knowledge. But science doesn't know everything. Do not sell your soul to science. We just went through a mess about COVID, about whether injections work or don't work. And you see somebody over here saying, well, I knew five people that died from taking it, and you got... Folks on the other side, well, I've taken six or seven or eight shots. I'm done taking shots for that mess. I can tell you that. I talked to my pulmonary doctor, and some of the problems I had with my voice, they think were COVID leftovers. But I asked him, I said, what about the shot, doc? And he said, I took two shots and still got sick. I'm not taking it anymore. I said, well, if it's good enough for you, it's good enough for me. Science doesn't know everything. It just doesn't know. The Gnostic speculation concerned itself primarily with the origin of the universe and the existence of evil. Those are important truths, very important. Their theory was that matter was inherently evil, and that's why they denied the deity of Christ. He could not be God in flesh because flesh is corrupt. They even went so far as to say it doesn't make any difference what your body does, As long as your spirit's right, as long as you're Gnostic, you have your secret knowledge. You ever heard the word docetism, D-O-C-E-T-I-S-M? It's a denial of the humanity of Christ. It teaches that he did not really have a real body. He just appeared to have a real body. Then there was Corinthianism. All these things come out of this secret super knowledge. They taught that the eon... The emanation Christ uh, came upon Jesus at his baptism and left him while he was on the cross. And that's why he cried out, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And the Gnostics would say it this way, my power, my power, why did you leave me? Well, we we know immediately those things are not true. Why? We have a a, uh, meta-narrative. We have a worldview. We can fit in where the universe came from. We can explain where evil was injected into the universe. We can explain redemption and how we're to be redeemed. And we can explain why Jesus cried, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? I may not be able to give you all the the details. I give you a pretty good outline. But when God turned out the lights of heaven for three hours and He had a transaction between God the Father and God the Son that we were not privy to. I just know that it happened. A full-flesh Christian worldview held up to other belief systems highlights their weaknesses. I want our young folks to have a Christian worldview, to know what they believe about sin, about righteousness, and so on down the line. Paul was not, neither should we be, afraid of light from any direction. He's talking about they found these aliens. You know, we... We got UFOs and they're not human and all that kind of stuff. Well, first off, I don't believe them. But secondly, if they do, it still doesn't change me. I still believe what this Bible has to say. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. Anything that's out there, God made it. And I'm, I'm satisfied with that. A narrow, undeveloped meta narrative leaves you open to deception, failure, and intellectual arguments if you can't put the pieces together, you don't know why you believe this and you don't know why you believe that, you just know that it's in the Bible somewhere, something like that, we're supposed to have, be able to give an answer for the hope that lieth within us when anybody asks. And it's okay to say, I don't know or I'm not sure when people ask you a question. Paul had to face not only Gnosticism, but he had to face the Jewish religion, Judaism. And Judaism, uh, of course, rejected Christ, but Paul was well-equipped to handle both of them. Some years ago, I preached a series through Acts chapter 17 on the arguments for the existence of God, the ontological argument, the tautological argument, those types of things about, you know, he said, the God that that you call the unknown God, that's the one I'm talking to you about. We want to be able to Say, I believe God is, and here's why I believe God is. We didn't get here by ourselves. The Bible even says it's not, you know, it's he that hath made us not we ourselves. We might have made ourselves plump. We might have made ourselves some other things, but we didn't create, we didn't create ourselves out of nothing. God spoke. Well, let's look at our text for a few minutes. We'll try to get a few things in tonight. I'm going to go through this in a running commentary sort of way. I'm not necessarily going to be giving you outlines. Uh, I may, I may not. I've got a lot of notes. If you can look, see my Bible, it's filled up with notes here. and I've got a stack in the office from the book of Colossians where I've, I've written through the years. But we're just going to kind of do a, a running through the verses as we go. There are three reasons. In verse number three, there's three reasons that Paul gave thanks he said we give thanks that's Paul and his crowd and uh, those three reasons are their faith their love and their hope their faith their love and their hope the apostolic thanks when he starts off in verse 3 we give thanks to God differs from civil or ordinary thanksgiving instead of celebrating the address e saying something uh, wonderful about them He pointed to God working in their life. That's a biblical epistle always uh, emphasize the presence of God. He's the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, Without Him, we can do nothing. Uh, A man can receive nothing except to be given to him of God. And so Paul uses that um, as he mentions, this is who I am, but I'm rejoicing in you because of what God's done in your life. There's a lesson for us to learn right here. Drive down a peg about we give thanks. When we observe anybody being blessed or giving evidence of God's hand on them, it ought to cause us to break out into praise. Far too long we have, we have been reticent uh, to give God the praise of which he's worthy. Psalm 116. Psalm 116. Verse number 12. What shall I render unto the Lord for all his benefits toward me? I will take the cup of salvation and call upon the name of the Lord. We need to learn a lesson when, when we see somebody else moved by God. When I was at Tabernacle, Ouija, would you tell you, uh, Sister Mull came down that, that long aisle down there, and I just about couldn't take it. She's a little old lady about Ouija size, always wore a little white shawl, she was never loud she wasn't loud but she'd get excited get stirred up and she'd walk down the aisle and she'd come down with her hands up so oh, if he'd done for you what he'd done for me you'd praise him too that's about all i could stand see an old saint of god i'm t- she was about 90 years old honoring her her savior giving praise to her god We as Christians need to learn to be verbal in our praise. Praise is not silent. Read through the Bible. There's very few silent prayers in the Bible. Amen. I know I'm plowing where we live. But we ought to be willing to give God praise verbally. According to Hebrews chapter 13, it's supposed to be continual. We ought to be doing it all the time. Be thankful to the Lord... And I'm not telling you you got to jump up and shout and run around the building and and wave your hands and holler, although I've been known to do that in bygone years. But we ought to be verbal in our praise. If if you're sitting in the congregation and God drops something off in your soul, you owe it, you owe it to say, Amen. I got something from God, Amen. Uh, let it be let, that's what I want. I want more of that amen. It'll help the preacher. I can tell you that. you know if two dogs get in a fight and your your dog's one of them you're saying, sick him, sick him. you want him to get the other one and, and, and win. Christians alone invoke the person of God. When we magnify him we uh, verse number one, he talked about an apostle of Jesus Christ, verse number two. From God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Muslims speak of Allah, but they don't speak of Christ. They believe He's a good teacher, but they don't believe He's God. They don't believe He died on the cross. The Jew will extol Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, talk about God's ancient people, but they ignore or reject Jesus Christ. The Eastern mystic will willingly add Christ to the plethora of gods that He already has. But he ignores or denies the exclusivity that Christ claims. Jesus claims exclusive right to faith. Thank you. I preached in a black church one time and the the deacons all sat in little green swivel chairs down here. And the preacher would say something they'd get stirred up and swing around and... So when I preach, they, they did some of that. That's a little unusual, but I'm going to tell you what, I'll take that instead of somebody just being dead at 4 o'clock in the morning. In verse number 3, not only did he say we give thanks, and he gave some reasons for that as we go through the text, but he talks about praying always for you, constant prayer. It is no big step in our Christian life that we have occasional fits of praying. And we're all guilty of that at some point in our life. Our, our prayer life intensifies. God does something in our soul. We, maybe we've asked Him to help us learn to pray. And so the fire begins to burn. And we begin to pray and we pray more and we pray more often. We pray more intently and we seek fellowship with our God. But if we don't maintain that, that's just a little fit, a little spell where we did that for a little while and then we go back to being normal again. It's no big step in our Christian life if we just once in a while pray intently. Consistent prayer should be our goal. Do you know that Thanksgiving is, is best or at least at home in our prayers? Look in the book of Philippians. Back up just a couple of pages from where you are. Philippians chapter number 4, verse 6. Be careful for nothing. The idea that don't be over-anxious or overwrought about things. But in everything by prayer and supplication. What's those next two words? With thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known unto God. I'm probably preaching to the choir tonight about that. We probably, all of us sitting here tonight, when we pray, give thanks to God every time we pray. But if we're not careful, we can fall into that grocery store mentality about prayer. Lord, I need this. Lord, I need that. We need this to be done, that to take place. And, and really, if we just stop for a while and just give Him the praise of which He's worthy and thank Him... He'll direct you praying. The more you read the Bible, the better your prayer life's going to be. The verbiage, the fodder, the fuel for prayer is found in the Bible. And so as I soak up its words, what do you find in the book of Acts when the, when the uh, early church prayed? They quoted Scripture. They'd quote the book of Psalms. they talk about the God who made everything there is. Now Look, they were in Jerusalem. And they got to talking about, Lord, you're the God that made the oceans. Some of them may have never even seen the ocean. The Mediterranean's not an ocean, it's a sea. And they so said, Lord, you made the oceans, you made the waters, and you made everything that's in those waters. You made everything that's in the air. Lord, you made everything. They were just bragging on their God, magnifying him, extolling him. Prayer is the elevation of our mind to God. Thanks are to be given to God when the mind glows with pious affections. In other words, when your heart's warm, that's a good time to be thankful to God for His goodness to you. Giving of thanks for God's blessings is the most agreeable place to begin to ask for new things. If God's been faithful to answer, we ought to give Him praise for that before we ask for something else. If your children come to you and they say, Daddy, I need $20, you reach in your pocket and you say, what do you need that for? Well, i got to put some gas in the car and I, I want to buy a cheeseburger and, and a, some a French fries and a Coke or something. And so you give them the $20 bill and they come back a few days later, Dad, I need another 20 And you say, you, you look at them and you say, you didn't say thanks for the last one. Wouldn't you do that with your child if they, if they didn't learn to, to be uh, have gratitude, if they didn't say thank you? You'd withhold till they learned to do so. So it's a good place for us to ask for new things when we thank God for what He's done. Here's a lesson to learn. Our prayers should be frequent. Psalm 55 and verse 17. Evening, morning, and at noon will I pray and cry aloud. You'll hear my voice, God, every part of the day. Our prayers should be fervent, a little fire in them, a little passion, a little emotion. I guarantee you, Pastor Taylor's prayer life's deepened since he's had to pray for his boy. It's affected me. When, listen, when you get pressed and things move you to pray, you'll learn to have some fervency in your prayer life. It won't just be, God, thank you for me and my wife, our two kids, us four, no more. What a blessing. No, we, you'll pray much deeper than that. Our prayers must contain and express thanksgiving to God. If we not, we're, I'm, I'm not sure we're praying if we don't give thanks to God. And I've already mentioned the fuel for prayer is found in the Word of God. The foundation, look in verse number four. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love which you have to all the saints, the foundation of Paul's prayers for the uh, Colossian believers was based on, number one, his knowledge of their testimony of conversion. Epaphras came back and gave him the details. He probably said, Paul, I went down there and preached and I I got in the synagogue, I got over here, I did went over there and stood in the marketplace and began to preach and people began to get saved. And and you Paul, would you believe it in a in a month's time? We had thirty-nine people that came to to saving faith in Christ. I I believe that Epaphras probably told him some things like that. And he gave he said, I want you to know, Paul, these were people who were idolaters. These are people who were immoral these are people who are gross sinners and their lives have been changed they don't live like they used to anymore when you read over in the book of first corinthians every kind of sinner you could imagine is mentioned in the book of corinthians backslidden christian best we can say about that guy who's shacked up with his stepmother uh, churches that were given over to feasting at the lord's supper and the the rich shunning the poor I mean, you just go through, and uh, and people who lived at Corinth, effeminate and abusers of themselves and mankind, meaning both sides of a homosexual relationship. And yet what happened? The Word of God got preached, and people got saved and changed. And when they got changed, they didn't live like they used to live anymore. And Paul is hearing from Epaphras, the same thing that happened at Corinth is what's happened with these people. They got converted. And Paul had an intense desire to go see them. Uh, I I enjoy mission trips. I love meeting our missionaries in their home territory. I love meeting their people. It's a joy to my soul. But I can't imagine how much passion Paul must have had to go see these churches that had been founded, so to speak. They were his grandchildren. Uh, He'd won somebody of the Lord, and they went out and started a church. And so those folks were not his children in the faith, but his grandchildren in the faith. Had a desire. Faith in Christ changed the Colossian believers from pagans to Christians. Might I say this? Grace in the heart cannot be hidden in the life. If you've got grace in your soul, it's got to show up. It has to. Look with me at verse number 5. I'll give you a little bit here and we'll be done. He said, "I, I want to thank God for the hope that's laid up for you in heaven. Well, it's the same hope I have. What do you hope about heaven? When I say hope, I'm not saying that something you you desire to be there. I'm talking about what do you know based on the Word of God? What's your hope about heaven? Well, I'm going to see Jesus. That's a hope. I'm not going to see him at a distance. I'm going to see him up close. Bible says they shall see his face. Uh, we're going to go to a place that is fabulously wealthy, but it won't matter. The, the, the wealth won't, won't matter. It, it only matters in the sense of the glory and the, the superlativeness of the city in which we're going to live. The, the streets are, are paved with gold. The walls are made of jasper and the gates made of pearl. The river of life is there. The tree of life is there. What's your hope of heaven? Oh, no matter how I've lived, thanks be unto God, I'm saved on my way to glory. My past is my past. I can't undo it, but God's covered it up in the blood. Hope. The earnest expectation of our arrival in heaven. Let me read you a few verses. Paul wrote this, For what is our hope, or joy, or crown of rejoicing? Are not even ye in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ at His coming? For ye are our glory and joy. Every preacher is looking forward to when he gets to heaven seeing people that got saved under his ministry. I believe when we get to heaven, we'll meet people who were saved through the missions outreach of our church. That we've never had a chance to meet and... Couldn't talk to him if we did meet them. I remember Brother Danny Whetstone talking about that fellow, Nakambola, something or another. They're in Africa who died from a very simple infection that penicillin would have cured. But he didn't have access to it. But he went on to heaven. First Timothy chapter 1. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the commandment of God our Savior, And Lord Jesus Christ, which is our hope, Titus chapter 2, excuse me, chapter 1 and verse 2, in hope of eternal life, which God that cannot lie promised before the world began. Paul said, I'm excited for you because the hope that's in your hearts, the same hope I have in mine. I want to see you now, but if I don't see you now, I'll see you then. Like a fellow said one time, take a good look at me now. you see me when we get there. In spite of the persecution of believers, the hope that we have is laid up for us. It's more than we can measure. Romans chapter 8. I I love the book of Romans. It's so rich in doctrine. But Romans 8 in particular, where you read the chapter about our victory in in the Spirit of God. But Romans 8 makes this statement. For I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. What's Paul talking about, the sufferings of this time? Well, I think he said three times he was beaten with 39 stripes. He talked about being cast into the deep, shipwrecks, more than once. Uh, He talked about Jewish people ganging up and swearing and promising they wouldn't eat nor drink till they killed him. I mean, we just go on and on with the problems that Paul faced. And he said, not even worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. You ever get the Ome's? You ever get the Eeyore's? You feel like nobody's got it bad as I do, nobody's treated like me. And I mean, we get the devil's a master of making you feel alone because he wants to devour you. But can I say to you, he can't? You belong to God, and you can't be devoured by the devil. At present, our hope is in prospect. I don't have it in my hand, but I've got it in my heart. The hope is to be expected with patience. supposed to wait for the day. Our hope is a a promised blessedness. This term lets us know the physical may pass away, but the heavenly is (laughs) permanent. My hope that's in heaven. I, I hope to be alive when the rapture takes place. My pastor, Dr. Seidler, wanted to, to be alive. But he said, you know, folks who die get something that folks who go in the rapture don't. He said, they get to spend time in paradise first. But whether it's by way of clouds or the clouds, as has been said, I'm heading on my way to heaven. The physical is going to pass away, but my hope is permanent. David, who wrote a commentary back in the late 1500s, early 1600s, I'm reading in it some, he wrote this, If you find not comfort and pleasure in the things hoped for, you are a Christian in vain. If heaven doesn't stir you up, something's seriously wrong with your Christianity. Our hope is laid up for us. Hidden in reserve with God the Father. I got a safe at home. Matter of fact, I have two of them, a small one and a large one. And I keep things in it that I don't, don't want anybody to get to. But somebody could break in my house, I guess, and haul the safe off with them. A tornado could come, blow the shed and shop away and, and do away with the safe that's out there and it'd be gone. You let the winds blow, let the storms howl. This hope I got in my soul can't be removed. It can't be erased. It can't be scrubbed. It cannot be removed. Our hope's laid up, hidden in reserve. It's laid up, reserved for one. Listen, the terminology laid up literally means reserved for one, awaiting the one who is to receive it. So God's put the hope up there. And when we get there, He's going to say, Here it is. Luke chapter 12, verse 32, it's your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. And according to Philippians chapter 3 and verse 20, our conversations in heaven. My, My life, my citizenship's in glory. Sometimes I probably don't act very much like a Christian. I want to, I want to act like one all the time. When I'm flesh, when all oh, my soul laid up for all of us who are saved, the presence of God, our loved ones who fall asleep in Christ, I mean, that's that tugs at our heartstrings emotionally. We expect that. But to be in the presence of the Christ who died for us, what a consuming thought. In Revelation chapter 5, when John... Was told, Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah hath prevailed to take the book and loose the seals thereof them to look thereon. And John turned to look, and the Bible says, And I saw as it were a lamb as it had been slain. We're not ever going to see him as judge. My sins were judged at Calvary. And when as a believer I sin, it hurts me. I get mad at myself, I get sick of myself. Because I know what Christ suffered on that cross. And my sins were placed on Him. Your sins were placed on Him. He died in your place. And we're going to a place where there is no sin, no memory of sin, no hint that it's ever been. And God, at the end of the millennial reign, is going to make a new, He's going to burn this place up and make a new heaven and a new earth wherein dwelleth righteousness. Oh, hope, hope! World hadn't got anything like that, but we have it in Christ. Heads are bowed and eyes are closed. Let's sing when we see Christ. Here you go, brother. When we see Christ, we're not going to have an invitation. But if you want to come, you come to the altar and pray. I'm not ever going to say no to that. You can come while I'm preaching. God moves you. But in just a minute, we're going to stand and sing. Sing about that hope we've got. Father, bless your people. Move on their hearts. Give us, Father, joy. Let us not be dulled down by this vile, wicked world in which we live. But may we enjoy thy presence. and May we look forward to the day when the hope, is consummated. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.